0: The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in leadership today. If you have ever wondered what it's like to be a follower of Jesus or to do ministry in a thoroughly secular city, well, you've come to the right episode. We're gonna sit down with Kevin Palau. We talk about ministry in Portland, Oregon, how difficult it is, but also how to build bridges with people in the city and the city itself. So you're in for a treat. Today's episode, make sure you check out our partners, Serve HQ and 10 by 10. Serve HQ's training automation platform makes it simple and fast to get your people ready for ministry. Check it out at servehq.church. And 10 by 10, through free, strategically created and curated resources, 10 by 10 aims to reconnect young people to their faith. You can visit 10by10.org today to learn more. Hey, I want to give a quick shout out to Kathy who left a five-star review for this podcast. And she said, Are you a leader in any capacity? If so, listening to this podcast is one of the best investments of time you can make each week. Thank you so much for that, Catherine. She said, In an overwhelming sea of content, Carrie filters out the mediocre and curates an outstanding collection of the most important thought leaders of our time. I'm probably not your typical listener, millennial, female, and not a church leader. Yet I glean valuable insights from the interviews. Carrie introduced me to great leaders, great books I never would have discovered on my my own. Highly recommend. Catherine, thank you so much for that review. When you do that, I promise you, me and my team, read them all. We are so encouraged and that helps us get the word out and uh, love it. You know, this does, this audience does skew you much younger and very different than the typical church leader, which is great because I am committed to equipping the next generation of church leaders, as well as uh, those of you who are the current generation and business leaders uh, in this podcast. So Kevin and I, are gonna talk about how to do ministry in a deeply post-Christian and post-modern culture, building relationships as evangelicals with the LGBTQ plus community, how to stay passionate about evangelism in a hostile culture, and so much more, Kevin is the president and CEO of the Luis Palau Association by the way uh, I had Luis on a number of years ago before he passed away what a powerful powerful episode Kevin is a pioneer of new strategies for holistic gospel transformation at the core of his leadership style is a deep belief that we are better together his book unlikely setting aside our differences to live out the gospel describes the ongoing impact of the gospel movement in Portland Oregon and inspires other Church leaders to love their community through prayer, service, and evangelism. So, I think you're really going to love this. And thank you so much for investing your time in this episode today. Hey, if you are still struggling with volunteers, or maybe you have a lot of volunteers, but you're looking to how you can onboard them well, you've got to check out Serve HQ. What if there was a resource that made onboarding volunteers, training them easier? because then you can go on and simply accomplish your mission. So I'd love for you to check out Serve HQ. It's easy to use automation tools. We're in an era of automation, and that's what Serve HQ does. They make onboarding new volunteers and church members fast, easy, and the best part— consistent. So you can create automatic sequences that enroll learners in online courses, send timed messages, and alert church staff members of follow-up tasks and everything else. Check it out at servehq.church. And then if you're a leader who really wants to revolutionize how you minister to the next generation, because we're losing them fast, but you're not sure where to start, 10 by 10 wants to partner with you. They are on a mission to reorient ministry around relational discipleship, radically focused on Christ. Now, it's free, and through free, strategically created and curated resources, 10 by 10 aims to reconnect young people to a faith community and the leaders that serve them. So 10 by 10 is here for pastors. It's here for youth leaders and change makers. So visit 10by10.org today. I'm going to spell that out for you. T-E-N-X- one zero. That's T E N X 1 10 by 10.org to learn more about the mission and access free resources today. Well, now uh, let's jump right into my conversation with Kevin Palau. I think you're really, really going to enjoy this one. Here we go. Kevin, I'm glad we're having this uh, long overdue conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Kerry. Same. Yeah.
0: So, here's a nice softball question. How weird is Portland? Like, <laughs> you know, it's like keep Portland weird. We've had John Mark Comer on the podcast a few times. I've spoken in Portland. Um, it's like but it's kind of to me, and I could be wrong, but a harbinger of the next generation in America. Like when you look at Gen Z and millennials, you know, younger millennials, you're like, "Oh yeah, that's Portland." Or I feel comfortable there because I'm in Canada. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah that's so right.
1: how weird that's right. is Portland? <laughs> there's you know, my it only is, question. It's kind of a I think we Portland styles itself as a progressive Mecca. And yeah. you know, we have, hey, we have the largest naked bike ride in the world and set the record pretty much every year. So to have that be like a cultural touchstone. But you know, there there's this there's the sad yeah, for the record of I've never too. participated in Same. that just so you know. I say that every time just just so you know, never participated, never observed. Uh, Uh But that would be, that would be an example. I mean, Portlandia is, was funny because it was mostly true. Uh I mean, people laughed along because it's like, are there people like that? Yes, there are. Right. Lots of them.
0: So what are some of the distinctives? What are you seeing?
1: You know, I would say, I would say you really do have people that are, that are proudly progressive and confident of what they believe. Rick McKinley, a good friend who pastors a Mago Day community here would say, Portland disciples its people very well. Mm-hmm. I wish we did as well at the local church. So when you look at pretty much every progressive value, Portland wants to be, you know, is kind of the epitome of that. And there are some very good things. It's a beautifully uh, environmentally focused part of the world with good reason. I mean, its it's a place with incredible natural beauty. It's a place that I'd say really does value people. And and personal opinions, personal freedom. Um, so there are a lot of beautiful things about Portland. It is also a very, very challenging place to be a follower of Jesus Christ and mm-hmm. getting harder all the time. For 15 years, we'll talk about it later, we've had a, a, a unified movement of the churches in Portland, but it's getting harder, not easier. As the country's become polarized, Portland has become known as on one end of things. And if you're attempting to live Um, Even humbly, graciously, but in a Bible-informed way, it's a challenge. Where would that come up? Let's say in
0: your daily life or your public life, where might you feel challenged because of your
1: convictions? You know, it's funny. I would say it's a lot of it's based on stereotypes. So for Mm -hmm. someone like me or most... I'll use the word evangelicals. Not everyone loves that term. I still Mm -hmm. like it for lots of historical reasons. It's got an asterisk
0: beside it these days, but I would would self-identify as an evangelical as well. And
1: and I I would Mm -hmm. as well. So mostly what I find is it's having to be very, very thoughtful and try to avoid stepping into things that hurt the cause of Christ. So When you identify in some way or someone sees you as a Christian follower of Jesus, so many negative stereotypes come up for many Portlanders. That means automatically that you are homophobic. You probably have an AK-47. I know who you voted for. In other words, Mm. a whole litany of negatives for a Portlander come up that do not foster healthy relationships Positive gospel conversations. So you're kind of having to go through mental. I mean, after a while, you get used to it. And it's not that you're acting ashamed of Jesus, it's that you have to overcome many negative stereotypes. You have to be positively seeing yourself as in exile and have thought through what does it mean to be a Jesus follower, but that doesn't fall into a bunch of big holes that have been dug by the media, and by how we're perceived.
0: Now, that's interesting. Okay, you know, being, most of the audience here is American, but being Canadian, I feel like that's been most of my life. Like, being a Christian has been a loaded term. And I've, you know, I went through, even when I was a pastor, I thought about calling myself a follower of Jesus or a person of faith or whatever, just so that I didn't, and I wasn't not embarrassed to be a Christian. Of course, you know, I'm a Christian, but this whole idea that if I say that, I am them importing all of this baggage. That's right. Which some of it may be true, but most of it I would say, no, I don't identify with that. Like, no, that's not how I see it. No, it's like terms that needed so much definition. I was hesitant to use them or would, you know, people ask me like, even what what does it mean? What do you do? I would go through 15 rounds before I said, well, kind of I lead a church, right? Because as soon as you say pastor they They think everything from well, you're a child molester to uh, you really hate people or um, boy, you couldn't get a real job or or whatever." So you're saying that's Portland
1: that is portland. and And again, I think we've had just Canadians, folks in the u k, Australia, been there, done that. You know, you current generations of pastors in parts of the West have grown up in that environment. In other words, grown up in an environment of exile recognizing like, we don't have the cultural, one, we don't have the voting block to make things happen, which I would argue is a very good thing. I think one of the reasons we, we've we had such remarkable ability to unify the body of Christ in Portland is because no one feels like, I got this, I can reach the city by myself. It's like, <laughs> yeah. we desperately need each other. And so I think there, there are positives. If, if If I would say we're in exile, and in Portland we know it and that's a good thing it's not that i'm saying wow i, I i'm glad that we're a minority it's more there is a Christ like there's a pressure to become humble and to listen well if we actually love people that can actually help our gospel witness but it takes intentionality and there are some remarkable stories of the impact of that in a place like Portland, because people hear a lot of negative things about Portland. People imagine the mm. city burning. It's like, is it still burning? Because I remember a hundred straight days of violent protesting centered on our federal courthouse. Literally, people surrounding the courthouse, throwing Molotov cocktails. I mean, we had a hundred days of it, and for a lot of people, that's all they think about.
0: So, what do you do with that? I mean, that there was was there a hundred days of it, or was that just misinformation? It, no, no,
1: it was one hundred days of it, and it was far longer than anywhere else when everyone else had kind of gotten I don't know how to how to put it because I'm not I'm not trying to diminish the genuine reality of the needed anger and the reckoning around race I'm not trying to diminish that but I don't think uh, very few people would say that that was the best way to make progress or to win people over so i mean portland is including still people who
0: participated exactly. in that? exactly I, w- I would say yeah. exactly
1: the vast majority yeah. of people you know, progressive Portlanders, not people of faith at all, would say like, whoa, 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 whoa. This has gone what were we doing? too far. What, what What are we doing here? And like, you know, yeah. the city's still recovering. Parts of the city were devastated. REI has pulled out. Some of the Nike are store, people have right? abandoned it. So, So it's been a challenge. And I would say the fact that 15 years before that, the church began this remarkable journey of saying, look, let's face it. We are known for what we're against and not what we're for. We didn't design that. Maybe it's not our fault. Maybe it's because of things beyond our control. But how are we going to change the narrative? And the only thing we could come up with, simple as it was, was let's go sit with our mayor and our city leaders. Let's acknowledge the fact that against our intentions, we are known for being against things. How could we change it? Mr. Mayor, city commissioners, school superintendents, we love you. Thank you for serving our community. We know that we're known for what we're against, not what we're for. We would love to change that. If we could mobilize thousands of us that love and follow Jesus Christ and love our city, what could we do to make Portland a better place? So that that's a 15-year-old and counting journey. And it's been remarkable to see the favor and the open doors among city leaders and many, many, many amazing folks in Portland that are not Jesus followers that see the church differently because they saw the church rolling up our sleeves, not in the time of crisis, not in reaction, but in saying, we're all about seeking the shalom of the city, Jeremiah 29, 7. You know, what's the posture of people in exile? Not fight or flight. Not mm. we're gonna we're gonna you know because God's word to the people uh, to the people of Israel that have been taken literal captive we think we're in exile we don't know what real exile is they did, and the word was seek the shalom of the city to which I've carried you into exile pray to the Lord for it for if it prospers you too will prosper our well being is tied to the well being of the city, and the mm. response isn't what we tend to do what do we tend to do I'm generalizing. I. this is me. I'm not throwing stones. What do we tend to do? I'm going to back up, circle the wagons, create my own cult subculture, and wait for deliverance because it's all going to burn anyway. Or we're going to fight and take this place back because it's ours in the first place. Neither of those tendencies, which I would argue is how we're viewed, are at all what either Old or New Testament enjoin us to do. And so that simple thing of What does it look like to seek the shalom of Portland, to to seek the well-being, to recognize that our flourishing is tied to the flourishing of the city? And hey, I'll bet our gospel witness, hey, Plow Association is an evangelistic organization. We're not a social justice organization. I mean, but even if you're looking at it from the lens, the narrower lens of how am I going to get this amazing message of Jesus Christ out, you better do it in partnership. You better do it. Demonstrating genuine love with no strings attached, and it's been a remarkable journey.
0: So I want to break that down a little bit because when you mentioned getting to know the mayor, it's not because your candidate took back City Hall, correct?
1: <laughs> nope. Okay. That is not, that is so correct. set
0: the context because in your last book, uh, the mayor of Portland wrote the introduction to that book. Yep. Not from what I could tell a Jesus follower. Um, a member all. of the LGBTQ plus or however you want to define yep. it, community. Yeah. And um,
1: really seemed to like you. What what happened? Well, you know, what, what happened was, again, this is 15 years ago now, and and I give credit to amazing leaders like Rick McKinley at Imago Day and others that were in the heart of the city. Full disclosure, I live in Beaverton, Oregon, home of okay. Nike, Intel. Yeah. So, like, I, I style myself as a Portlander. A real Portlander would say, whoa, 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 Kevin Palau, you live in Beaverton, 12 miles outside of Portland. But that being said, um, we recognized our deficit. We recognize that in trying to talk about Jesus and the good news of Jesus with Portlanders, we're starting in this 10-foot hole of misunderstanding. So again, it was that context of how do we seek the shalom of the city? Well, let's not talk to ourselves. Let's go talk to the people that are paid or vocationally They may not say seeking the shalom of the city. They wouldn't know what that is, but they would say we're trying to make Portland a better place. So let's go see the mayor. And we we had a hundred pastors meeting at our offices, kind of prayerfully saying, what could this look like? So they bravely deputized my dad and I, you guys go see the mayor. Because frankly, the thought was, I don't know how we're going to be perceived. What's he going to think? To his credit, Sam Adams liked the beer, Uh, He was actually city commissioner, one of the five city commissioners, and was basically mayor-elect. So he wasn't mayor at that point, but he was on his way. So we sat down with him and had a simple conversation that I would like to think is kind of obvious. Mr. Mayor, thank you for serving our city. You know, you may or may not know much about us. We're, you know, a Christian community, in particular, this evangelical community, guessing that you may have some stereotypes or past history with our community. We know that we're known for what we're against, sadly. We would love to partner with you to make Portland a better place. We think we could mobilize, I would not recommend this. We came up with a number, and and I don't know where the number came from, but out of my mouth came 15,000 folks. We're gonna mobilize 15,000 folks from our churches to love and serve Portland. I do not recommend that. It could have gone very badly. (laughs) Whoops. whoops. You know, we could have said 15,000. We could have had 400 people showing up. Uh And again, the idea wasn't a one day of service. The idea was Palau Association does big evangelistic events. If people know anything about my dad, Luis Palau, they might associate him or the Palau Association with doing big evangelistic events in our mind was Let's go to Portland's Waterfront Park, the living room of the city. Let's bring in friends like Toby Mac and Chris Tomlin and Lecrae or whatever. And let's have a big evangelistic music festival. But as evangelists in Portland, we'd never done anything in our home city before. So we're thinking, this isn't going to work to just simply say, come here, Luis Palau, come here, this Christian music that you don't know. So we thought as evangelists, we were thinking, you know what? if we could get our community loving and serving our community with friends that don't know Jesus and with mm. corporate sponsors, we just thought, you know what? I I think this would be a better evangelistic opportunity. So again, full disclosure, we weren't thinking long-term. We're not community development experts. We made every mistake in the book, including throwing out a number. But to Sam's credit, Rather than saying whoa 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 whoa, you know I know about you guys, you know because we'd actually done a a, a a festival a number of years earlier that had no community service. It was basically just gathering the church, proclaiming the good news. He was right. the chief so of the staff. Christian, of the, the Christian, the Christian thing. thing. You guys, Christians are having your thing, and with that was your great.
0: megaphones going, hey exactly. hey street people, come on in. exactly so, right. Yeah. And, and yeah. frankly,
1: it was it drew tens of thousands of people. It was it was positive. In other words, no protesting, no. Problems. But you're preaching to the converted. Preach, kind of preaching the choir. So in order to <laughs> not do that, we thought, what if we could get the Portland Trailblazers and Wells Fargo Bank and Pacific Power to be sponsored because it's a community service effort? What if the the festival was as much about celebrating the good that we do when we make a difference and serve the community? So that was in our minds. And Sam, to his credit, didn't say, you got a lot of credibility to build up before I'm even talking. He was like, he took a he took he believed us when we said, we're not asking for a penny. We're going to do our best to mobilize our community. How could we do that? He jumped right in. Public schools. He mentioned Roosevelt High School, you know, built in the 1920s for 2,000 students, 400 students left. Because if you could get your kid out of Roosevelt, you'd done it. So he's thinking, and, and frankly, I'll, I'll quick aside on Roosevelt. We found out later that, you know, uh, he had a conversation later on with this head of the school, um, Portland School Superintendent Carroll, also a prominent LGBTQ plus community member, they had a conversation and said, let's kind of suggest Roosevelt because it's on a short list of schools to be closed and like, what's the worst that could happen? You know, we're probably going to close the school anyway. We didn't find this out till later as he got to know us and as he saw the power of the church mobilized. It was incredible. Not 15,000, but over 28,000 Jesus followers took part in over 300 service projects over a six-month period of time building up to this festival, tackling issues like foster care, hundreds of school partnerships. It was incredible what what the church was able to do. And then the festival became a celebration.
0: Oh, cool. So let's talk about Roosevelt. What what did you do or what would you do in a case like worst school? All right, we'll throw these guys this one. If they can can do anything with it, we'll all be impressed. Well,
1: Well, what did you do? uh, Oh my gosh. Well, you know, what what happened was, I'll I'll try to cut a a very interesting, in fact, there was a documentary called Undivided that was made about it that tells the, the amazing story of the transformation of Roosevelt. But what began, and I said we made mistakes, every mistake, that naive suburbanites could make we made <laughs> and and also I'd also say a well-meaning evangelistic organization that's not right. a community development association so we went in you know we we had hundreds of churches eager to serve uh a, a large by portland standards 2000 is a mega church in portland mm-hmm. oregon mm-hmm. we don't have a lot of big churches so yeah, a great most church most parts of the South country Lake, too that's yep. that's true that's true so we found um um A church, a suburban church, wealthy by Portland standards, and pretty large, with a bunch of Nike execs, uh, were like, "We want to give us a big project." They they had a little bit of that suburban swag, or they would say this themselves. Yeah. And and so it's like, "Give us a big project." Well, gosh, the mayor and superintendent said Roosevelt, they did a great job preparing for months. They had a thousand of their people in a well-planned. Um, it ended up making a million-dollar-plus difference. It was incredible what they did. The mayor, all the city commissioners, the Oregonian, which is our state newspaper, ended up doing a like a six-part cover story on the transformation of Roosevelt, which began with a makeover. But the interesting thing was, again, naive. We didn't do a bunch of things we should have done. We didn't go to the churches. This is, this is one of Portland's pockets of communities of color, So every red flag should have been blinking to us like, whoa, 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 whoa. White suburbanites coming in. Flocking in Messiah complex. Whoa, whoa, Mm -hmm. whoa. Exactly. Like we should start with building trust and relationship with our churches of color. We made every mistake in the book. By God's grace, everyone was humble and repentant and amazing things happened even because of that. But what began as a one-day makeover the people at Southlake fell in love with Roosevelt High School, despite like a 20 mile you know, distance and a bigger cultural gap. And they began showing up kind of unsolicited. They began showing up week after week with Christine, who was the outreach pastor of the church. And about six months into this, Charlene Williams, who was the principal at the time, said, Christine, you're here every week with volunteers. Why don't you just office here and become the volunteer coordinator for the school? That happened. Neil Lomax, former NFL quarterback, started, you know, became the offensive coordinator for the football team. By the way, hmm. there was no football uh-huh. team because they'd condemned the grandstands. So part of this makeover was Nike execs that are followers of Jesus from Southlake got Nike involved. They totally rebuilt the football field, the track, the grandstands. They began mentoring every kid in the freshman class. They went from 40 students to now over 1,200 at Roosevelt. Their on-time graduation rate went from thirty-six percent. It went twenty. It went up twenty uh, percentage points. All this led our school superintendent to say, "If that's what you're talking about, let's find a church partner for every school in Portland Public Schools." We're about seventy percent of the way there. So this happened over a period of of oh years. I'm telling a quick story, but but this became a, a church was planted. Uh, a multicultural church was planted. Um, As a result, Charlene Williams, um, who, again, I mentioned was a principal, her and her family came, became, uh, she's an amazing African-American woman, certainly a believer, but her faith was revitalized. She's now part of that church plant. She is the uh, associate pastor unpaid, and she was just asked by our governor, Kate Brown, to become the new head of the Oregon Department of Education. Whoa. So there's some amazing, so again... Things you would not expect in solidly blue, proudly progressive Oregon. Um, That's just one example of the power of a smallest uh, Christian community actively Mm. mobilized together and seeking the shalom of the city together.
0: So that's a really inspiring story. And I'm so glad you told it. And I think you're right. I mean, the tendency can be, particularly for white, suburban, more affluent people, Messiah complex. I'll come in, I'll just put in my hours of community service, help these people, and then go back to your really comfortable, affluent life, et cetera. What are some of the exportable principles, characteristics, um, dispositions you have to have to do
1: that well? Do you know what I'm driving at? 100%. Because again, mm. I we made every mistake in the book. We continue to make mistakes. But I think because we started with the genuine mindset of, of humility, I would say always assume that you do not know what you're doing. And, and typically as the church, we are not community development experts. We're not experts in no. the, the foster care system. There are people that have devoted their lives to it. We're not experts in education. Now, Granted, there are always Jesus followers that are embedded in all these systems, but I'm saying pastor or leadership, et cetera. So we always just said, do what we stumbled into. Go to the people that I would say God has placed there, believers or not, and ask them humbly, how can we serve? We're not promising what we can or can't do. We are not the experts. But if there were some simple things we could do to help you in the foster care system, to help you that are on the, in the trenches, trying to deal with the massive houseless crisis in Portland. So that it's, it's a humble posture. So I would say it's a simple Jesus-like posture of humility and taking on the role of a servant. That is not sadly what many people that are far from Christ, it's not how they perceive us. They perceive us as know-it-alls, think we're better than everybody else, think we have the solutions. And I think when we go in genuinely humble, not aha, that's a good tactic, but like, are we humble? Do we recognize how we're perceived by many of the people we're trying to reach? And sometimes the perceptions are because it's absolutely true. We have very arrogant attitudes. We're not willing to own our stuff that have made us,, um, you know, have these these perceptions. We tend to get defensive and say, well, that's not true. That's not fair fair or not this is the this is the way we're branded and the way to overcome the that negative branding is by humbly building relationships of trust and serving and be prepared to listen to a lot of garbage being thrown up in our faces about who we are and be prepared to listen with humility it doesn't mean that we don't as trust is built we certainly defend god's word and biblical principles i'm not saying we don't do that i'm not in nothing i'm saying i hope it hope it doesn't come across as compromise some may feel that way i i would absolutely say no i would say we are standing firm on biblical principles we're not ashamed of what scripture teaches but boy when you can have that that humble posture recognize that we're in exile but that can be a good thing if it leads us to serve with humility and look for ways to declare boldly the good news of Jesus Christ in, in the right ways. So I, I would say, the other thing I'll just mention is unity. There's something incredibly powerful about recognizing that my church, my denomination, my nonprofit uh, is one tiny part of the body of Christ in the world, in the U.S., in Portland, in Beaverton. And I think it's something we've discovered in, in the Pacific Northwest and many other cities are discovering the reality. The way I put it is, you're not creating a movement in Portland or any place else. You're recognizing the reality biblically that there's only one movement that counts and that began on the day of Pentecost. And it's more it's more like discovering the beauty of what's there. I boil this work down to two words, celebrate and accelerate. Always looking to celebrate the beauty that God by his Holy Spirit is creating within his body and in the community. So it's a posture of celebrating what everyone's doing rather than, I read this book or I got this idea, let's unify the church and let's go do this or that. And it's like the people that have been already doing the work are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We, the African-American church, we, the Latino church, we, the Slavic church, we, the Asian church have been in the trenches doing this work forever. We don't need you to come in. So when the posture is, I'm celebrating, I'm kind of, shining or, you know, cutting the diamond and, and making it shine brighter of what, what's already there, that is what creates a movement. It's, it's more, the movement is there, let's celebrate it. And then as trust is built among leaders, how do we accelerate in various seasons in things like school partnerships? So we would say in Portland, wow, school partnerships, we had no idea who was doing what. Now we're aware of hundreds of examples. How do we share best practices? How do we build trust with the powers that be so that they trust what we're doing? How do we overcome negative stereotypes? Same with the foster care system. So I I know that wasn't like, here's five simple postures, but I hope that people can grab out of that some important tools. And we're aware of over a hundred examples just in North America of what I've described in Portland.
0: Hmm. That is really cool. If people want to know more about that, your last book kind of went in that yeah. direction. Unlikely, and, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's called Unlikely. We'll link to it in the show notes. And Sam Adams wrote the introduction. And it seemed like there was no duress. He was under no duress. He just had a genuine appreciation yes. for yes. you and for what the churches were doing. Um, I imagine that there were two other obstacles to overcome. One, like getting those 100 pastors. There's probably a 100, Kevin, but I want to focus on two, okay? Getting those pastors in a room to agree to do something together. Yeah. That can be hard. A lot of people yes. are like, we can't even get 10 in a room. Are you kidding yep. me? Because this guy doesn't like this guy, and this denomination doesn't like that denomination. And, you know, uh, what, did you, what did you encounter there? And then you mentioned that you had a lot of stuff sort of thrown up in your face while you were in the community. And I imagine you had to take a few... Uh, blows to the face and maybe a couple to the gut along the way too. So what kind of obstacles did you have to overcome first within the faith community and then when you interfaced with the general community?
1: Well, you know, and part of our story, every story is unique. Every city story is unique. And part of our story, we were un... we were helped by the fact that dad, Luis Palau, yeah. we haven't really had a chance to talk to oh, him. Oh, we're going to talk about you. We're worry. going to, I know we're, that. We're
0: not, we're not well, hanging up without you know, talking this about was your our. Dad. This
1: is hometown. So mm. even though we, had, we hadn't done a bunch of big united things, we had earned our stripes, so to speak. Dad had spoken in so many churches. We, we were kind of known to be a neutral convener. In any kind of movement, mm. you're looking for the neutral convener, or biblically, you might say the person of peace. You know, who is someone that just seems to have a favor on them that's not a threat? So sometimes, like, the big church is like, I like that idea. I'm going to call together get the other churches. Yes. Uh, really? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm not going to say it, but you're kind of a threat to me. And I'm not going to maybe indicate that because it maybe makes me feel bad about myself to think about. But I don't want to lose more people to you. I've already lost hundreds of people to you because you're the shiny, bright object at the moment. Palau Association, not a church neutral for everybody. So you're always looking for who is the neutral convener? Convener meaning has enough credibility and influence to get people in a room. Neutral mm-hmm. meaning trusted, no agenda, so to speak, other than the bigger kingdom agenda. So now again, this is all, we weren't thinking this way at the time. This is all like looking back to what God did as we were just stumbling through it. Now I would say that's what we were. We were the neutral convener. So we were able to say um, out of a time of prayer with pastors, what do we do to reach our community more effectively? That was the conversation. It led to, we've got to serve. We've got to kind of keep our mouth shut for part of this. Again, the goal was to boldly proclaim the good news, which dad did in front of 50,000 people over the course of the two day weekend with the mayor standing there on the stage and thanking people for all this great community service. But, um, Uh, we were able to convene around a bigger shared vision. So the bigger shared vision you'd always hope would be the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. That reminder, like, aren't we all really just part of one bigger movement? So I think as things get harder, again, Portland had the benefit of no single church or denomination dominates. So no one has the right to say, I don't need you. It's harder in the Bible Belt. It is much harder in the Bible Belt. There are fewer thriving city gospel movements to, to use a Tim Keller phrase that I would define as a united, holistic, sustainable movement of the church as a shorthand way. I mentioned there's a hundred that I'm aware of just in the US. Um, it's harder in the Bible belt. It's harder mm-hmm. where there's lots and lots of mega churches that may feel like, no offense, I can I can speed dial the mayor myself. Maybe he goes to my church.
0: And he's one of us. He's
1: uh-huh. one of us. So it's it's easier in a place like Portland where there's a sense of, of um we need each other so i that would be um you know a, a a prayer i guess that that we would be able to see more and more cities that recognize their need for each other and i think it's happening yeah could, it a happening. quick
0: diversion before you get yes, to the second yes. part because i i think what you said about the bible belt is really important i want to get your take My take, because I'm in the Bible Belt a lot, speaking, meeting with pastors, is senior pastors, usually boomers or Gen X, are kind of like, yeah, no, this is the Bible Belt. That doesn't really apply. And they might be already discounting what you're saying. But you meet with the next-gen people, the student pastor, and he's like, oh, man, my kids, they sound like Portland. They're there already they're there already. So we're we're probably a decade away from that being the dominant voters, the dominant workforce, right. the dominant right. leadership even in places like Texas or Nashville or you know name some other cities, even rural um exactly. America. Do you see that because as well or feel 100%. free to push back. No no no, mm-hmm. I,
1: I would I would agree in Not enthusiastically because it's it. This is sad. (laughs) We're not saying this from the standpoint. We're not saying it's a good thing. It's a real thing. thing. Like yippee! It's more Mm -hmm. like Dad. Dad would always paraphrase uh, the beginning of *Tale of Two Cities* by Charles Dickens. You know, whether these are the best of times or the worst of times, it's the only time we've got. We don't get to choose. Or Frodo, you know, and Gandalf, you know, I wish I wasn't here. This, you know, what? It's like we don't get to choose. We're here. So, given that. I do think that that if we, if we can adopt the right posture as quickly as possible, if we can listen mm. to our Gen Z leaders, if we can be more open, amazing things can happen. Portland is a shambles in some ways. There's, I mean, Portland looks worse today than it did 15 years ago. That's a shocking reality because of things beyond our control. But the United Movement of the Body of Christ that we call Together PDX, by the way, PDX is our airport code. For yeah. 10 years, we purposely had no name because that's a very Portland-like thing. Don't ruin it by making it a thing. Just operate as a organic, you know, relational network. had that awesome carpet, network.
0: the PDX carpet that they
1: replaced. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. You're right. You, you know your stuff. But... um yeah, so so um oh gosh, I, I I lost track of where I was going. Oh. I like got so excited about uh Well,
0: I got excited about uh the carpet. um oh well, yeah, it's
1: Bible belt, Bible belt. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So yeah, I I think that we we are in this window of opportunity that that's fraught with potential problems because another election's coming up, because we're more polarized within the body of Christ than ever. But I'm I'm bullish. On the Holy Spirit, always I'm bullish on nothing can stop the the movement, the most impactful movement in history, which is the Church of Jesus Christ, to begin on Pentecost. And I do believe that if we can if we can have a simply a, a humble posture of a Christ like desire to make a difference in our communities for the sake of the gospel. I'm not talking about everyone becoming justice warriors, and you know you get into all kinds of discussions around that. I'm talking about bearing witness to Jesus Christ with a humble posture, I think there are ways to do it. And I absolutely believe the countries are going that direction. I always say, barring historic revival, God can do it. Millions are praying. I know all of us are praying for supernatural works that are beyond what we can control. But I would say, while we pray and hope for things like that, this is the approach that I believe will further our gospel witness.
0: Yeah, get to work. What about... um... What about some of the things you had thrown up in your face? You're in the trenches, you're in the schools, you're in City Hall, you're yeah. working with people, and you're there with a posture of humility, and you're not going in with an agenda other than to serve and try to make Portland a better place. And hopefully, I guess the agenda is win people to Jesus. We never hid yeah. that either. Unabashed.
1: Uh, surprisingly, yeah. we, we you know, just, so just so you know, I mean, like, even at the first thing, maybe naively, we didn't hide that one Mm. Palau is evangel Palau equals evangelists. It's what we so do. like you couldn't hide it if you wanted to. Mm. So we kind of naively went in. Okay, they know who we are. They know that we're evangelists, which kind of equals evangelical. That's all a mishmash, and they don't they don't quite know what these terms even mean. In fact, I would often start the conversation with mayors, city commissioners, school superintendents. Department of Human Services. Like, would it help if I kind of described a little bit more about our community or what that term evangelical even means? I would almost always get a vigorous head nod, like, yes, that would be helpful. Mm. It would give a chance to say it's not a political term, and it would give me a chance to to proactively say you're probably thinking X, Y, Z, and in all humility, I get why you're thinking that, but let me tell you what the community is like here in Portland, how we love and serve, and it's made up of all kinds of amazing everyday people and, Mm -hmm. frankly, CEOs of some corporations here in town that you may know. And it's a very diverse community, and it includes um, many, many uh, people of color. And in fact, the majority of of our communities of color would identify as followers of Jesus. So you're kind of reminding Hmm. them of things that that get them out of the evangelical or Christian equals, ultra-conservative, fundamentalist, that hate everybody. So You know, um, yeah.
0: just a little editorial comment. It, it, that might strike some people as really strange. It's like, what do you mean you have to define evangelical? But ask the average Christian. Well, define the difference between Shiite and Sunni Muslims, yeah. Islam. They'd That's be right. like, I have no idea. And But if you're an unchurched person, you
1: probably have no idea what an evangelical is,
0: other than what you have read.
1: Other than, and you view it, you've, you put it in those categories. So I would say the challenge is, that we've had, uh, what, I, what I always tried to do is build trust based on our, sh- I try to just find the common ground. You know, so if I was having conversation with with school superintendents, principals, city commissioners, I would always start with, thank you, thank you for how you're serving. Thank you for how you're making a difference. Um, I'm I'm part of this, this piece of the community. And frankly, I know we're kind of viewed a certain way how could we serve and make a difference? And it it kind of undercuts the conversation immediately being about the differences. You're finding the common Mm -hmm. ground. Once we had been doing this for a few years and Sam was still mayor, I remember we we were at a barbecue and he was kind of, it was the first time we were in a meeting. It wasn't a meeting about something. We just found ourselves at this barbecue. And he's like, how much pressure are you getting from your constituency is how he put it about this. Meaning like we're working together visibly and i said like none and he was kind of ticked off it's like what i'm getting a ton of pressure from my constituency about why are you working with these people they are the enemy and it, it was kind of humbling to me to realize like wow i hadn't really put myself in his position to say he's taken a little mm-hmm. bit of a risk to associate with those people you know we are those people in a place like portland you know we we have to think Always, you know, in that sense of trying to get rid of thinking of people as the other. And and that led him to say, like, well, you know, let's do something interesting. I'll bring Portland's key LGBTQ plus community leaders to a quiet meeting in my office. You bring the senior pastors of some of the largest evangelical churches. Let's just kind of have some fun, see what happens here. And, you know, the way Sam started the meeting, and interestingly, he was 15 minutes late. And it was like a junior high dance you know, boys on one side, girls on the other. It was like, it was like, never the twain shall meet. And I finally went over and stuck on my hand and the and the gentleman put his hand behind his back, literally, and said like, I'm not sure what this meeting's about. I'm going to wait for Sam. I mean, that was the level of like mistrust. Whoa. So it's like, oh boy. So Sam comes in and did such a great job. Like, look, this is not a meeting where we're going to repair the damage or pretend that we're going to fix things or 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 come to agreement between the evangelical community and the LGBT community on all kinds of important things. Kevin and I mm. have become good friends, not because we agree on everything. In fact, we disagree on some pretty fundamental things, but we found that that if we focused on what we agree on, wanted to make Portland a better place for our kids, et cetera, we could um, become friends, do some good, and then actually have meaningful conversations about the things that divide us, rather than just yelling back and forth. And we think that kind of conversation will make Portland a better place. Then Rick McKinley, who I mentioned, when we went on, on the introductions, Rick did a beautiful job, and we hadn't prepared for this meeting, just saying, I can imagine some of you have had some pretty hard experiences at the hands of people that you would at least identify as evangelical followers of Jesus. So mm-hmm. I just want to start off by saying... Sorry, I get choked up thinking about it. Um, hmm. You know, we're sorry. And again, Rick, just just please no, no emails. I'm not talking compromise. The whole point was, Sam was, was saying, we're not going to agree on that. The evangelical community are not going to agree with us on marriage equality. That's not going to happen. The point is, can we still have meaningful conversations? So that led to a very... I would say, fruitful relationship-building time. Now, this was years ago. To be honest, I don't Mm -hmm. know if we could have the same conversation. The level of pressure within both communities is now such that I would sadly say, I don't know if it would work as well now.
0: What was the breakthrough in that moment? Was it was it Sam? You
1: needed a neutral party between
0: the two? Was it Rick? What
1: what was it? I would say it was the combination of those two. I would say it was a modeled experience of without compromise, we are who we are, but we we genuinely love each other and we can work for the common good. And again, Kevin Plough is a head of an evangelistic organization. We have not abandoned the gospel. We have not compromised. But I would say our friendship was able to be modeled, and Sam happened to be the mayor, and I happened to be, on one, stand, one hand, just the head of a nonprofit. But the other hand kind of viewed almost as like the neutral community that's getting hundreds of churches working together, including most of the larger churches, and it was able to mobilize 30,000 people to serve. So there was, you were coming in with a little bit of clout. I don't mean that in a, mm-hmm. in a, you know, but mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It wasn't like but you, you built something, You built. You respect. built some credibility. That that mm-hmm. would be a better way to put it. Sure. And then you had Rick's humility. I remember John Mark Comer was in that room. I mean, you had um, Bishop Wells. You had the key African-American leaders. It was a diverse group of men and women, and it was a powerful time. And I think it was Rick's fencing the moment by the Holy Spirit and beginning with repentance. And again, don't get me wrong, not repenting for what Scripture teaches— not in any way, but repenting for ungodly attitudes or someone experiencing what they at least perceived as Mm. hatred. And that's not the way of Jesus. So we can repent. There's a lot we can repent of that doesn't require us to abandon everything we believe scripture teaches about gender and sexuality. So
0: you say it's harder now, and I don't disagree with you. Are there current moves like that in Portland, or has that not quite survived COVID? Or what do you what do you see?
1: You know, I, I would say the the current state of affairs, I'll just do two quick catch-ups. One is we had our own racial reckoning to come to. We had, I would say, surface level relationships. We we could have defended ourselves and said, Well, what are you talking about? Look at all of our community service. We've done it together, black and white and Latino and Slavic and Asian. The reality of it was we didn't have the depth of relationships. And when everything blew up with, with George Floyd's murder and, and the protests, you had tens of thousands of people in the streets of Portland starting peaceably and then ending up with a few hundred people surrounding the courthouse for 100 days. That created an opportunity for us to recognize that we were not where we needed to be. So, so there are... Um, There are things like that that are just as important that we weren't even talking about when this whole genesis, the origin story that I've talked about was more about these other things. We've had to recognize that we have a long way to go. And and the depth of love and relationship that's happened in the last few years, that's a huge positive. I would say that we have to rebuild, you know, we're on a third mayor, you know, Sam, there've been two mayors post-Sam. There's a Good relationship. It's not quite at the same level of depth. And here's the sad reality too: the churches of Portland have suffered, like many churches all across the country, due to COVID, et cetera, et cetera. And our attendance is down. And mm. our navel gazing. I don't mean that. I didn't mean that quite in the way it sounded. We're we're sur- we're in survival mode in a way. Like, hey, we we used to have two full services. Now we've got one full service or two half full services. I'm working hard to get my people to volunteer to keep the church going okay. Like I don't have, I don't have Southlake doesn't have a thousand volunteers throughout Roosevelt high school anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's like we have less of an ability to deliver. Like, could I, if if I had a gun to my head and I had to deliver 30,000 volunteers in Portland, could I do it? Nope. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that's a sad reality we are that we are struggling with. There's a lot of positives. There's amazing things that have happened and continue to happen. We have great unity. There are new churches like Bridgetown and Rose Church, Door of Hope, that didn't exist when this process began. I would say there's a confidence in the gospel and, and in our place um, in Portland that has led secondhand. I'm not trying to take credit mm. but at all, but I would say that the context that's been created in the favor in the city has given a greater sense of I'm not alone. I can plant in the hardest part of Portland, which is the urban hipster core, what people watch when they see Portlandia. That's been the graveyard of church planters. And we now have a handful of thriving churches there. So there's a lot of good things, but I would say if, you're, if you are if you in a mind to pray for Portland, I would say pray for even greater unity and a depth of honesty across racial lines like, it it gets harder before it gets better and stronger. And, and I would say we are in that process. It's been beautiful. Um, and I would say um, pray for a renewed opportunity for the church that is smaller numerically to still make as big a difference as possible and, and kind of rebuild. It's not negative. It's just we could have a stronger relationship, I would say, with some of our newer city leaders. So why do you stay? Why don't you go somewhere where it's easier? Plenty of people have left, too. That's another sad reality. We've had a, a fair bit of turnover in our pastoral ranks. And certainly I could name off—I'm not—I wouldn't. I, I could think of a number of of marketplace leaders who've said, I'm moving to Nevada. I'm moving to Idaho. I'm moving to places. I, I, I don't blame them. Um, I mean, I understand— but I mean, I stay because I genuinely love what God is doing here and I cannot imagine living anywhere else. The beauty of Together PDX, which again is just the name, you can go to the TogetherPDX.org website to see some of the things that are happening. I I I love to see what the kingdom can look like even in a Worst case scenario, and, and I shouldn't say worst case scenario. I'm sure God's laughing and saying, like, or just like oh, a church yeah. history. We're not, we're I, a million I'm reading miles some from church history case. right now. Yeah, there have so been I, some worst case scenarios. I repent of saying worst case scenario. I'm you saying, you don't need to. I get it. You know, a place where you'd argue the grass looks greener in other parts of the country. I would say, well, why would I want to miss that opportunity to see what it can look like?
0: Well, and as Keller said famously, churches should be running into the hardest places, yes. not running away from them. And that's that's why he and Kathy planted Redeemer in New York and, you know, why he didn't leave during COVID and the whole deal. So, um, boy, oh boy, time is flying in this conversation. And I'm so glad we have covered what we covered. But I'd remiss your father was on this podcast. And I had the privilege. I've had dinner with you, lunch with you. I had dinner with your dad one day at an event we were doing. And he just blew me away. And it was one of those few things. I remember that interview, 600 interviews in, Kevin. And we'll link to it in the show notes. But when I interviewed your dad, he was just so hopeful. And he was diagnosed with stage four cancer. So yes. he was he was still quite strong and robust. But we ended the conversation, both of us in tears, good mm. tears. Mm. And I remember getting down on my knees and, and just thanking God for that conversation. And I remember the dinner I was at with my wife, with Kevin and a bunch of other leaders, or with uh, sorry, yeah. your dad, Luis, yeah. and a bunch of other leaders, and I just remember nobody was asking him questions. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I like I did you're ignoring one of the greats. Like we have a great around the table here, and you're all talking about yourselves. And so I was really glad I was able to have a conversation with him before he passed. What is the legacy your dad left with you? I know every human is a flawed human. And he had his 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 struggles as well. But tell me what you are
1: grateful for in your dad's life. He loved Jesus Christ with his whole heart. He loved sharing the good news and and It just poured out of him in uh, every—he took advantage of every opportunity in a winsome way. I I just don't know anyone quite like him. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I'd be remiss if if even in describing the Portland situation—I wish we had more time for this—but, you know, Portland, this whole journey I've described was sort of around, like, coming alongside the city and loving and serving— We needed people like dad. I needed someone like dad to remind me and at times hit me over the head with a two by four to say, don't forget evangelism. Mm. Evangelism. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's that relationship with him that actually is the hope of the world. And dad just loved evangelism. He loved finding every way possible to share the good news. And so I would think, I think his legacy In me, as his son, my brother Andrew and his wife Wendy, that are the evangelists with the Plow Association, my other brothers, this whole organization, as an evangelistic organization, because I know most of what I've talked about have been things that are kind of, they relate to evangelism, Mm -hmm. but it's more like the context we're in and how do we soften the ground and open the doors. If dad were here, he'd probably be kicking me under the table saying like, you're not emphasizing evangelism enough. (laughs) you're, you're, you're kind of like, don't let's not have unintentional mission drift. He, I, I I had a Holy Spirit before we found out about dad's cancer. I had one of the most clear experiences of the Holy Spirit I've ever had, where it was one of those, you are the man, you know, the prophet kind of a thing, not Mm -hmm. because someone challenged me, but it was in a sense, my dad's voice in my ear, me kind of resisting. Every once in a while, he would say, like, all this stuff that we're doing in Portland is great, Kevin. I see how enthusiastic you are, the schools and foster care and all these kind of things. But like, it's great. It's biblical. It doesn't need any extra justification. But where's the clear gospel proclamation? Well, Dad, you don't understand. I had a moment of the Holy Spirit helping me see you have lost your personal passion for evangelism. You are doing this partly because you are growing cold. You are ashamed of the gospel. It's easier in a place like Portland to be applauded and have relationships around all this great, cool stuff because you're kind of emphasizing the common ground part. Our, mm. I had a the clearest Holy Spirit moment I've had in my life, and then about a month later, we find out about dad's cancer. And it was I, I don't view that as a coincidence either because it really helped prepare me to take over the Palau Association. I mean, I was already president at that point, but I mean, that's a long convoluted answer on legacy, but I am who Mm -hmm. I am, we're doing what we do. I would like to think, I believe the Palau Association is doing right exactly what God wants us to do, which is all about winsomely, creatively, in innovative ways, perhaps, with the whole body of Christ, sharing the good news because of dad. He loved the local church. He grew up close Plymouth Brethren, you know, which is about as fundamentalist and non-unity as you could get. But what that did in him was give him a, the centrality of the local church. And that's his legacy. I would say he hmm. loved people, every person he met, the, the, the Guatemalan server, the president of Latvia, President Clinton, whoever it was, well-known person, absolute, quote, nobody. He loved them and he gave them undivided attention because his life had been so um, transformed. And I mean, the last thing he did before he died, you know, he got out of the hospital. He'd never been to the hospital a, a day in his life overnight. And in, in the last few weeks, he finally went in and one day became 12 and none of us could go in there because it was during COVID and mom could only see him. When he got out, the last thing he wanted to do was spend one hour with each of his 12 grandkids, including my three adult kids. And, and to, to, to see him just hearing the good news with some of those, his own grandkids that weren't fully walking with the Lord, to see um, Thomas, you know, totally, my twin brother Keith's middle son, absolutely come back to the Lord, hadn't been to church a a day for, you know, for five years, plays drums at our church now, done an internship. I mean, that was dad. And I just mentioned that because to his last breath, he was um, encouraging people, follow Jesus because, um, he knew that, uh, there could be nothing better. He really believed that the most loving thing you can do is to introduce someone to Jesus Christ. So, um, yeah, I I mean, his legacy is, it's, and he's no different. We could name many people with that same legacy. So, I'm not Mm. trying to say that he was unique, but he was unique in in some ways. I mean, he was the real deal. And I could say that as a, as his son and who worked with him for 36 oh, years. I would know. He wasn't perfect. He had a temper. He had an ego. Earlier years, he didn't achieve every goal he had, but boy, he loved Jesus Christ. He loved people. And he had so many open doors because people knew that he loved them. And he listened so well in every situation. So uh-huh. um, anyway...
0: And isn't it amazing that God uses broken people? It really is. And he uses them in extraordinary ways. And your tears are a testimony (laughs) to your dad's Mm. legacy. You know, one of the things he said to me was he was so grateful for your leadership. And Mm. I know the transfer to to your leadership happened long before he died. It wasn't like, oh, quick, we better get this done. But he was describing in his interview, it's almost like he didn't fully understand all the changes in culture. He's like, I know the old approach doesn't work, but you know Kevin's running it now and he's figured out a new way. I don't understand the new way, but it's working and he's doing a good job and I'm just gonna preach the gospel, right? That kind of thing. And what did you learn about succession with your dad and about changing culture? Because I think there's a yeah. lot of leaders listening who are trying something that worked in 1982 or 1997 yep. or 2014, honestly, you can be 35. It's like, right. I started this when I was right. 20. Right. It worked when I was 20. It's not working when I'm 35. Your dad had a little bit of it, but he also had the wisdom and the foresight to let the next generation yes. reach the next generation. Yes. Any final thoughts on on that, Kevin, with what your dad did well in that respect?
1: I, he, what dad did incredibly well was he was genuinely humble enough, even as the founder, It's the Luis Palau Association, he easily could have said, look, start your own thing if you're so hot to trot to try something new, you know, yeah. prove it yourself. Yeah. But so for him to be willing to say, I'm going to listen to a younger generation, and I'm not trying to style myself as younger, younger, but, you know, he could have said, you know what, hey, no offense, but what I've been doing has worked pretty well. I filled stadiums. And hey, how many stadiums have hundreds you Hundreds of thousands Kevin? of people, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So so he, he, so that humility to mm. say, and he led the way on succession. He did not have to be, it wasn't like, Take this out of my cold, dead hands. You know, he was looking for the opportunity to let the younger generation lead. And I wanna also say, you know, yes, I'm president and CEO, but my brother Andrew and his wife Wendy, who are such capable evangelists, they do it differently. They do it together in many ways. Wendy's a, you know, from Jamaica, she has her perspective. It's beautiful to see people using their gifts in different ways. I mean, Dad recognized that my style was different. I'm more collaborative. A, a founder like Luis Palau, you join the team to work for Luis Palau. If you didn't believe mm-hmm. that Luis Palau was worth following, you wouldn't join the team. I came in and over time was like, I think we can reach more people if we partner with thousands of other evangelists. What would that look like if 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 their win, not that we're taking credit for what they're doing, but let's let's build into that next generation of evangelists. What does it look like to have a sustainable movement in a city that when the festival is over, or crusade as we used to call it, what if that could continue somehow? Dad's mind didn't work that way, um, but he allowed me and others, many, many others, to come up with those sorts of things. So I guess I would say if you're the older leader, listen better. Even if you think you're a good listener, challenge yourself to listen better. Uh, We all struggle with that. We all think we have good Mm. ideas. And I would say don't fall into either ditch of the way that I've worked, been doing it is good enough. Like it's probably not good enough for the way things are changing, but, uh, you know, but also don't get so daunted by the change that you say, I, I just got to kind of slow down or like, I have nothing to offer because I am Mm. middle-aged, like, or, or I'm white suburban. What do I have to offer to the changing... You know, dad believed that the fields were white for harvest. And so every person he met, he didn't get overly hung up with all the nuances and all the changes. He kind of cut through as like, yeah, talk all you want. People are people. Their hearts haven't changed that much. Read the scriptures. People are people. So it's that balance of people are people. And so stick to the basics and speak to people's hearts because they haven't changed as much as you think. And don't get so tied to your methodologies at the local church, in your business, in your nonprofit that you don't realize that younger people probably have some good ideas, and you're going to probably have to give up a little bit of power and control.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, is there anything you want to say that you haven't said so far?
1: Well, you know, the only thing there was one there was one little little um, kind of tool. Uh, that relates to the evangelism side of things. Ed Stetzer, who's become a really, really good friend of mine, he and I have become joined at the hip because of the He Gets Us campaign. And I realize mm-hmm. non-Americans won't know what that is, but it's it's really a remarkable opportunity where some marketplace leaders have are literally putting up hundreds of millions of dollars to put a campaign together to try to get people to think a little bit differently about Jesus. And Ed and I are working on a, an evangelism masterclass with people like Lisa Fields and Rebecca McLaughlin and Mark Middleberg and J.D. Greer. So we've put together a totally, totally free tool that's going to be available on glue.com. I'm sure we can put some information on it, but we put together a totally free resource that really everything that you've talked about, we've talked about here as far as posture and mindset, we've put together an eight-part, simple, free with study guides cetera, that any church can use, um, that we hope will be helpful. That I think will kind of if you're if you're like, wow, I like some things he was saying, it and it comes out um, mid September and it's available anytime for free. So that was just that's a tool. Awesome. But, the, but I guess the word, if I was kind of channel my inner Luis Palau, and this is from the heart for me, but it, but I know that what comes to my mind is just kind of looking through the screen, so to speak, or if people are listening to my voice and just remembering the basic truth that however you're feeling about the state of your ministry. And let's face it, a lot of us are maybe feeling like I can remember better days. Like I'm actually kind of frightened and discouraged. Like things are changing so quickly. The cultural pressures are are building so fast. The headwinds are so strong in my face. I'm not sure if what I'm doing matters. I would just say you know, what you're doing, um, it really, really matters. You may be pastoring a tiny church plant. You may be pastoring a dying congregation of 10 senior citizens. You are where you're you, you, you are occupying a unique part of the body of Christ, and we need you. So that's what I would say. We need you. An unnamed, maybe unprocessed city movement that's yet to be developed in your city or town needs you. And don't ever think that you don't matter. You, you matter to, to the Lord. And you matter to however many people, big or small, that follow you. And so you being that beloved son or daughter um, is all that God requires of you. And um, together we are part of the most impactful movement in history. And we can't let the current circumstances we are in as a country or, or even globally help make us doubt that core truth. So I say it to myself. I have to say it to myself all the time. And I hope (laughs) that you believe that about yourself if you're listening as a leader or whatever your status in the kingdom is. We need you and you have an important role to play.
0: Mm. What a wonderful word to close on, Kevin. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. By the way, I think it might be getglue.us. Get.glue.us. I Thank work you. on them with them on a regular <laughs> basis. You guys have a hub. We have a hub. Yep. I love what Glue is doing. And if you haven't checked that out as a church leader, make sure that you do. Uh If people want to know more about you and the Palau Association, where do they go?
1: So palau.org, if you can spell Palau, P-A-L-A-U, five letters that can be mixed up. So mm-hmm. palau.org is just all things about what we're doing. You can link from there to citygospelmovements.org. So if if there was an intriguing, like he talked about a bunch of examples of these sorts of things. I didn't know about that. citygospelmovements.org has a mapping function. You can see, hey, there might be something going on that you weren't aware of already in your your community. That's cool. Or at Luis Palau Live. So palau.org, you can kind of get to anything you might be interested in. Yeah.
0: Kevin, can't wait till the next time we get together, which I think will be soon. But thank you so much for coming on the
1: podcast. Thanks so much.
0: Well, I really appreciate Kevin. And I love his heart and I love the approach. And you know what? I really believe we're going to need that all over the United States and Europe and Canada and Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and beyond, uh, basically around the world. As the world becomes more and more post-Christian, we're going to have to get inventive. We're going to have to change our methods if we want to preserve the mission. So if you want more, we've got it in the show notes. You can head on over to carrynewhoffcom episode 613. You'll find everything there. We also have uh, transcripts. So I like to go back sometimes and they're searchable. So you can check that out. Uh, speaking of checking out, make sure you check out Serve HQ and 10 by 10 ServeHQ's training automation platform makes it so easy for you to onboard and train your volunteers. Check it out at servehq.church. And then 10 by 10 is revolutionizing how we engage young people and their faith. They want to help reach 10 million young people over the next 10 years. Check it out at 10by10.org. Tell them that I sent you tenx10.org uh, and we'll have more on that later too, but don't wait, check it out now. Well, we got a lot of great episodes coming up. We got Craig Rochelle coming back on the podcast, Jamie Kern Lima, John Mark Comer, John Ortberg, Karen Gordon. And next episode, Philip Yancey is back. We're going to talk about the grace crisis, uh, his two hours in the White House with Bill Clinton, Roe v. Wade, why he thought publishing What's So Amazing About Grace would get him canceled, and a whole lot more. Here's an excerpt.
2: Well, I was called to the White House to interview Bill Clinton. I spent several hours with him. Uh, just the two of us. Well, actually, there was another guy from Christianity as well, and we could ask him anything. And I, I learned early on that if you if you charge in there, Mr. have you realize how many people are punch you because of you. you know, immediately, those walls go up. You'll never get anything interesting from him. You'll only get these kind of sound bites that he's said a thousand times. Because there's no real authentic dialogue going on. And so it becomes a performance. And that, that's no fun at all. So my job as a journalist is to draw out of him something that will represent him authentically so that the readers can judge whether they agree or disagree, whether they like him or don't like him.
0: That's next time on the podcast. Man, you loved his first appearance. It just uh, blew up as an episode. And so I had to have Philip back. And You know, it's been 25 years since What's So Amazing About Grace got released. A few of us remember the original release. Yeah, that would be me in there as well. Hey, before we go, if you really enjoyed this episode, please, like Catherine did, leave a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast. Tell your friends, share it, post it to social, whatever you need to do. And one more thing before we go, which is I do a newsletter every Friday called On The Rise. It's the most popular thing I send out via email all week. And you can subscribe for free at ontherisenewsletter.com. You can join about 100,000 leaders who look forward to it every Friday. And I share a curious mix of like, well, definitely some stuff in our lane on ministry and faith but also things like the cleanest restrooms in America. That one just went crazy. You guys love that. I will share with you podcasts I'm listening to. I'll share with you uh, shows I'm watching, books I'm reading, and a whole lot more. And it's short. You can get through it in a little bit of time. Sometimes I give you longer articles to click through to for weekend reading if you want. But of course, it just is a quick way to stay connected with some of the most interesting things. And as Catherine said, hey, there's a sea of content out there. I'd love to help you cut through the noise and find some stuff that's really really going to help move the needle on your leadership. So go to ontherisenewsletter.com, subscribe for free today, and join the hundred or so thousand people who get that every single Friday. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, man. I love doing this together. I am so grateful for you. And I hope our time together today helped you identify and break a growth barrier that you're facing.